Hello, welcome to the Live, Love, Let podcast. I am your host, Andrea Johnson, and today we are exploring the idea of learning as a path to self-discovery with our guest, Rob Socket. Rob is a learning and development consultant and a professional coach. He works with individuals and organizations to help them discover their values, vision, mission, and purpose, and designs ecosystems to help them flourish. Outside of work, you'll find him spending time with his two lovely children, his dog, Christmas, or with horses. Rob, it's such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for joining. Hi, Andrea. Hello. The horses, the horses is a relatively new thing. I fell in love with dogs a couple of years ago when I got my first one. I didn't have one growing up, and uh, it made me realize that I also have always kind of been obsessed with horses. So horseback riding is kind of a new, a new thing. Dangerous than dogs, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also your trips up north, dog sledding. That's also exciting and new. I have been dog sledding a few times and that led me to get a, a dog, a Husky German Shepherd. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think as I've gotten older and, and, and I've traveled a fair amount in the world, but as I've gotten older, mm -hmm. I've come to really appreciate Canada and especially the Northern parts of Canada. Mm. Um, I feel like I haven't gone that far North yet, but I have some plans to continue to kind of push up and it's funny because I hate the cold, but I just, I like the concept of the North. So um, our conversation today, super excited to see where it goes. I love the way that you view um, learning. I think it's a bit different from the way it's, it's um, typically seen. Uh, so I think it's going to lead to a very interesting conversation. Um, and I think a really great place to start off with the let's define learning. Wow. Okay. That's uh, going to say, we start, there, we start there, we might never end. That seems like the biggest possible question. Although I'll say a good one, because I think like there's so many people I meet in the learning profession. And when we start mm -hmm. talking about learning, we realize it's kind of very elusive. It's like a lot of topics, right? Where you think you know what it is when you do it and you work in it. And then at some point, somebody asks you, like you just did for this big picture definition. You're like, hmm, yeah, what is it? I don't know. It's it can be kind of slipped through your fingers. But since you asked a big question, I think, you know, I'll start at the what the way I think of it at the biggest possible level and then maybe narrow it down to something that's a little more tangible. Um, one of the things that I've, I've really come to think about is just, I mean, people talk about learning and, and the curiosity for learning being universal in, in humans. But I mean, you see it in all living things. And I was reading a book um, just before the holidays, like a few months back, had come out called Finding the Mother Tree. And it's a scientist from um, BC. And she's one of the people that really figured out, um, and this is kind of out in the media a lot more, I think they're making a Hollywood movie about it. But she really figured out how trees communicate underground using these networks of fungi and things. And that led me to read another book by this guy that's sort of, I don't think he's a colleague of hers, but um, in the broadest sense, a colleague of hers. And he wrote a book just on fungi, right? And when they talk about this, you realize that every living thing, its fundamental quality besides like eating and living and dying is learning, right? Mm. Right down to like one cell animal. So everything is like continually sensing, responding, 
adapting based on uh, on that and evolving in, in in some way or certainly the creatures that survive you know are evolving and adapting in some way now obviously the more con uh, complex the the living form the more complex the level of what we might call learning um you know starts to look like um you mentioned at the beginning my my dog and yeah i didn't have dogs growing up and i never really appreciated them and then I got interested just by watching like a, a documentary with like dog sledding and I ended up going uh, up north a few years ago and trying it and it made me fall in love with dogs and so shortly after um, my kids convinced me to get a dog um, we were looking at huskies and German shepherds we ended up finding like a crossbreed so it's this beautiful dog and it's just it's 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 actually one year my daughter just reminded me it's one year anniversary or it's one year birthday sorry is is uh, next week so it's like one year old and watching Christmas learn again it's I'm putting that in quotes because it's different than human learning but it's very mm -hmm. recognizable as learning has been incredible and I would say beautiful um it's really watching like the instincts of this um domesticated sort of wild animal interact mm -hmm. with this environment and the environment being other dogs other people physical environment food and what you start to notice is first of all they have this insatiable curiosity and this desire to play um, and that's interesting because all of the the research and the theorizing around why we learn and how we learn as, as children is always about curiosity and play that's that's mm. like key concepts right um, and you see him sort of sensing like he does a lot of that especially early on like I remember when he was first on a bed and he didn't know how to get off so he was kind of leaning and trying to feel his body weight and his mass and at certain one point he jumped off, but he was sort of tenuous. And within a matter of days, you know, he'd run and he'd leap onto the bed and he'd turn around and he'd leap off wow. the bed. So we figured that out, right? And I mean, sniffing other animals then, sniffing other humans, seeing what's safe, what's not safe, that mm -hmm. kind of desire to preserve your safeties there. But then, you know, starting to understand, like receive kindness and give kindness, they're very protective. And so they quickly learn sort of who to protect and who to ignore. Um, and I guess even more lovely is out of all of that sort of instinct relating to the environment in various ways, you start to see a unique personality come out and unique behavior traits. Like he responds in very unique ways. And a, a friend of mine has a really well-trained dog and I was with it and I realized, oh, it's like a totally different personality like it's nothing like my dog but it's mm -hmm. the same breed right and it looks the same and you know mine is just again it's got these very unique behavioral traits that are emerging and starting to solidify sort of puppy grows into dog and so that seeing that it makes you kind of realize like how universal this is and that we're always learning in the broadest sense of the term learning like every mm -hmm. second of every day we're learning in some way so the other thing about learning that's interesting to say is, is I read an interesting book on, you know, how humans were classified on the evolutionary scale. And this, this scientist in the 18th century, I don't remember his name offhand, but he's considered like the, the father of modern biological classification. So, you know, the trees you see of, of the different mm -hmm. species and subspecies and how they were. So he was the one that coined the term homo sapien. And it literally, it's Latin, it translates as wise man or wise hominid, because we're in the hominid kind of branch, right? Mm -hmm. And it made me think, well, wisdom is evolved learning. Like most of the early figures, the Greek philosophers and that, when they talked about wisdom, they were talking like this evolved form of 
of knowledge that adds in it um, attention and perception and discernment and judgment and it's embodied based on context and it's hard won over time long periods of trial and error and understanding what's good and what is successful right and so wisdom doesn't just happen it's sort of the end of a long process of careful reflective learning right mm. and so i love this idea of like homo sapien translating the wise hominid or wise man it's this idea that we're the ones that learn or ideally can learn to the point of uh wisdom and that you know more and more they know now where we we're more open to talking about that it's not just cognitive intelligence wisdom especially requires social and emotional intelligence uh responsibility and care over yourself and, and others in the world with wisdom, there's also a sense that you receive it from, you know, wise people uh, over time yeah. with family or larger figures, and that you pass on wisdom. You, it's generational, right? You should be passing it on. And, you know, wisdom gets encoded and adapted over time and becomes really the root or the baseline of our culture, um, any good and stable culture, obviously, and any, any flourishing civilization. So, Learning in the biggest sense, like you ask, kind of what is learning, that's kind of the big picture. When you narrow it down to kind of individuals in the process of learning, I mean, it connects with that, right? Humans are, are meaning seeking and meaning making. That's a, a quote that I came across in my, in my um, coaching training. And I love that. And we do this, obviously, as individuals and groups and, and, and civilizations. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a special type of learning that gets us to this meaning making, meaning seeking, right? It's not just passively receiving knowledge or learning a set of skills that just allow you to cope. I mean, that's part of it, but mm -hmm. it's really expanding from there. What, what things resonate with us deeply? What brings us to points of wonder and awe? Are we following our curiosity? Are we developing knowledge and skills over time? as we get older, as part of our calling, like, what are we going to do in the world, right? How are we going to contribute uh, to the world? And that, I think, if done well and done with, with the proper kind of nurturing, it's going to play out totally differently and uniquely in each and every one of us. What I said about Christmas, like a dog, and within one year of just, you know, spending time with him and taking him for walks and doing things, it's like he's a unique being in the world now, and he plays himself out day to day and very unique and, and lovely ways. So, mm -hmm. so that's the big picture of learning. Now, I don't know if you want me to talk the flip side, because that's sort of that idea of like self-awareness, self-understanding, self-exploration, and then the flip side of how we discover our place in the world, find our place in the world and, and grow mm -hmm. into it. Like that's, to me, the big picture. But I mean, if you want, I could also talk about maybe the flip side about what are the problems with learning? Like, because the way we view learning as a society is maybe at odds with that in some ways. Yes, you know, I think that's a great. Okay, so first of all, there's a lot that we can talk about because this is like a huge subject. We can talk well, about hours, you have possible <laughs> hours and months, and and <laughs> it's a big one, I know. But um, I think that you just touched on something, touched on two things. I want to go into mm -hmm. the first. I want to jump into is. Um, this idea of learning, I know a lot of us learning is, you know, a, a means to an end. It is something that we do to get somewhere. It's like, you know, you, it, it typically happens in a particular type of space, school, and it mm. typically has a particular function, which is to get you into a career that 
you will hopefully enjoy and that yeah. will hopefully enjoy, um, but that will definitely gain you some sense of financial stability and security for your life, yeah. right? And I think that's how a lot of us tend to think about learning, um, especially as adults. Um, as a child, you may learn to ride a bike and that happens. But I think as an adult, as we, as we move from childhood, learning mm -hmm. becomes very, very um, functional. Sure. So can we talk a bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, for sure. Like learning equals school is sort of something that I think a high percentage of people in this culture and most cultures probably just take mm -hmm. for granted. Like it's not something they think about. And it is that, I mean, it's funny. I've been reading a lot lately and following on Twitter a lot lately, home, people that do homeschooling, experts in homeschooling and mm -hmm. even some parents that, that um, share some interesting stuff on that. And it's interesting because some of the stuff in there is pretty far out there and there's people that are hostile to the government and this and that, and that's why they're homeschooling. But mm -hmm. there's also a rich set of very passionate practitioners and theorists trying to understand like what's a, an evolved form of school, what's a better form of school. And most of what that hinges around is this fear that way too early in the learning process, which you know, six or seven hours a day of that's at school. So yes, there's learning going on at home and in hobbies mm -hmm. and in personal interests, but this just huge chunk of your, your life is spent in school. And the way they tend to think about it is just, it's too controlled, like very quickly in grade one, two or three or something, like we kind of leave kids alone in kindergarten or so, but at a certain point, there's already the sense of like, you're learning things to succeed in life and to get a job and you know mm. these skills are in demand and so we're teaching you know we're upping math math's more important now because of xyz right and yeah and a lot of that's responding to the world and I, I i don't think there's anything wrong with that but what it does to the individual i think and we know this as adults even i think right but we we kind of perpetuate it sometimes with our kids is like we need more room to grow there's there's a, a lady that I love. I think she's the Dean of Student Admissions or Student Guidance at Stanford. And she's written a book, um, How to Raise an Adult. And then she wrote a second one called How to Be an Adult. And uh, I love them. I, I saw her on a podcast, fell in love with her and started reading. And she talks about school and, and parenting, even like this over-the-shoulder parenting that tends mm -hmm. to, if, if we see a kid as like a plant growing, right? And and kindergarten, you know, she was reminding, it's a German word, but it means garden of children, right? And this idea of children, mm -hmm. these flowers in a garden and the teachers there to water them and, and knowledge or it's wisdom, sun, whatever in this metaphor. But she sets up this beautiful dichotomy is like, is the teacher raising a bonsai tree? And if you know from bonsai tree, it's like heavily pruned and every, it's like super restrictive, right? They even, mm -hmm. if you watch the Japanese do it in the, in the most real way, they'll wrap like bind it almost like the way the Chinese like bound feet or whatever to grow mm. in a certain direction. And it plays out over a few decades, right? Yeah. Versus a wildflower. And a wildflower is also, you know, a living thing. It's, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But the idea with a wildflower is you might have to water it and it might need some protection in some direction, but you're letting it kind of become what it is. So there's... Mm -hmm less guidance right and it doesn't mean no guidance and obviously the bonsai tree isn't total guidance but she kind of sets these up as as two poles and you really see this like especially as kids get into like high school and in the last couple of years of high school and like there's this real pressure to like pick what you're going to do for life 
Mm-hmm. And I, I know for me, like it took me a lot of different attempts. Like I studied, got a degree in literature. Then I went for four years to the Royal Conservatory to do piano and, and pedagogy and, and composition. And, um, and all of those enriched me, right? But I was not ready in high school, let alone even like the beginning of university to mm-hmm. really figure that out. I mean, some people are, right? So yeah, I think I think when learning just equals school in a very narrow way, that mm-hmm. it's this more of like the kids don't have enough room to breathe and discover things on their own. And you're more like, it's like the mind of the culture, the mind of the work world or the mind of the teacher um, carving out this bonsai tree, right? Versus the welfare. And most of the homeschooling, right? It's this idea like how much guidance do we give versus how free do we leave children to discover for themselves in that wildflower model. The, mm-hmm. the last thing I'll say on that that's interesting is that um, I did a lot of um, number of years back uh, when I was doing more, more corporate sort of learning strategy, did a lot of onboarding for banks. So onboarding for people that work directly with customers, whether in a live setting or on a phone or through text, right? And so mm-hmm. most of these were like 20 year olds, young, a lot of them, you know, they'd gone through uh, high school and necessarily college. And we used to go because it was classroom based training at first. And we used to go in the classroom and we'd redesign the curriculum and we'd watch them. And the one thing that hit me like a ton of bricks very early on was the majority of the class had a really, really negative view of learning, right? Oh. Um, so for them, learning was work. They thought learning was over because they finished high school. And the fact that they now were going to be like a number of weeks in a classroom getting fully onboarded so they could do, mm. you know, banking. There's a lot of products. There's a lot of um, nuances of compliance and, and, and stuff and customer service. So like a lot to learn. And they were just kind of really bummed out, like not all of them, but I would say 80%. And so we started building that into the curriculum, right? And we started getting away from the sense that it was training or it was learning, like we played around with some other words, but really we addressed like right on day one, what are your experiences with learning and training? And they would talk very openly, like I didn't do well in high school. I hated going, I didn't get good grades or I wanted to do this, but there was no classes on that. And mm-hmm. finally, you know, I needed to get a job. So I did this, right? And um that was amazing to me. And I started reading up on like the state of learners, like in, in North America coming out of like primary and then secondary school. And it constantly talked about how creativity, curiosity, and this idea of asking why um, mm-hmm. kind of gets taught out of students very early on. And there's a study, I think it's um, the character lab. I don't have the details on, on hand, but I was reading it recently. Was, mm-hmm. was tracing the questions that students ask in classrooms. And they did a long study and recorded it over time in kindergarten. And if you've ever been with kids at that age, you'll know, they ask, why is it, why? Like the sun's, <laughs> the sun's you know, orange and the sky's blue. Well, why? Why? Right? <laughs> and this insatiable curiosity. Yeah. And this study showed how like strong in kindergarten, grade one, it already like has a half life. Like it starts to get cut down and it gets mm. narrowed. And there's no time for that. And that by like grade five or six or whatever, like the curiosity that comes along with the why question and, and that mm-hmm. is, is taught out of you. And so, and this continues, like, as you said, like it equals school, but in the corporate world now, it's the same thing. Like the corporate world is heavy on teaching the future skills of tomorrow. And again, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, but um, 
if it's just like the learner is passive and there's this like active teacher that's kind of like filling them with the the knowledge and skills that they think they need in order to be successful mm-hmm. there's really no agency or intrinsic motivation with the learner and it, it says to me that at some point during their learning and their growing up as a learner they went way off they lost control over their learning if, if they ever had it mm-hmm. you know that's bringing earlier in the conversation you mentioned you you mentioned a few different types of intelligence um mm-hmm. and i think that's i guess the connection to what you're saying right now for me is interesting because you talked also about the different things that people were learning. So it seems as though there's like, you know, the connection between the different types of intelligence, the connections of what are people actually interested in and are they learning what they're interested in or are they not? Um, Because I mean, for example, from in my personal experience, I like my family thought I would literally be in school forever because I loved Mm -hmm. learning. I loved um, being in school. I loved that entire experience and I thrived in it but that was not necessarily meant for everyone Um, so I happened to just be in a system that um, was well suited for me and allowed me to thrive in the skills that Mm -hmm. I had yeah but for the person where that's not true for them I can see why and how that can create such a negative experience where where someone finishes school they're like well thank god I'm done with that (laughs) never have to do this again and then they start a job and they're in a classroom and they're like why (laughs) you know it's it's a connection it seems like there's a strong connection there Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts yeah there is I mean one thing I'll say um because I, I I know you fairly well and from what I know of you you always told me that you had your kind of mission set when you were like in grade six or something I think you said that to me uh when we were talking recently and my sense is and I do this a lot in the coaching work and some other work that I'm I'm working towards now on really looking at some of the fundamental like building blocks of learning and I find both like with corporate stuff or organizational learning strategy I do as well as like individual um coaching is this idea that you 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 need to be grounded in like your values, your purpose, your mission, your what what you're most passionate about, what you know mm-hmm. gets you out of bed, as they say sometimes. Be, and, and and a lot of people aren't, or if if they are, I find with coaching like it's not genuine. They'll list me sort of values that sound very like corporate-y, like something they picked up at work or they picked mm-hmm. up in. I don't know, watching a TED talk or something. And when you go a little deeper, it's not that they radically change, but the nuance and, and, and sometimes some surprises pop up and stuff. Um, so you, you've always struck me as somebody that from a very young age, like your values, your purpose, your mission, and that doesn't necessarily mean I knew exactly what job I wanted and where, right? But what's important to me, what kinds of interactions with people are important to me, what I'm not interested in, what my strengths are, right? Mm-hmm if you had a really good sense of that from a young age, to me, it makes sense that you would do better at school. You, you choose better courses. You'd be able to really differentiate a good versus a, or a meaningful versus a non-meaningful learning experience. So mm-hmm. I think the sooner people learn that, then they can guide their own learning. And I think that to me, like a big part of what I'm doing in, in the two sides of my, my professional career now are trying to get people to take ownership over their learning. Um, mm. mostly working with adults or young adults, but 
because um, I don't, I'm not, don't have any expertise certainly in, in early pedagogy and stuff. But as I said, I read a lot of the homeschooling stuff and I was excited to see like there's a lot of action taking place there and a lot of experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there is this deep connection between, you know, at an early age, like it's not that you want kids to define their mission and their purpose in kindergarten, not at all. That will, that will take place naturally. But what you want to do is create a safe space and an encouraging space we're exploring things broadly are there. Like I know with my kids, like expose them to certain uh, cultural things, certain experiences, mm -hmm. sports, like as part of it. And when I grew up, it was sort of like all my friends played hockey. So I played hockey. And then I remember at 14, my dad was going to sign me up the new winter. And I'm like, do I have to do that? I don't really like hockey. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, and with my kids is kind of much more like what, interests you you don't have to make any decisions now but like go where things interest you and my son has a very keen sense of that like he just follows his intuition and it mm. takes him to some pretty you know amazing places with what he learns and is curious but yeah I think like yeah you're right like your your temperament your strengths um some people are like love formal learning more they love learning from others my son loves learning from wikipedia like he's probably read you know 3,000 mm. Wikipedia pages. I think I told you, you tried to start updating Wikipedia pages <laughs> on research and he was banned. And I thought, I don't know, not banned, but like they took away his um, editing pr privileges, which I don't know how he got in the first place. They mm. took them away for three months and uh, and I was laughing because he was only 10 at the time, right? But, but that's his thing, right? And he does mm. not, he's not into team sports, like not interested in that at all. Loves yeah. rock climbing, right? Just rock climbing's his thing. Um, and I've started to figure out why, but you know, he, mm -hmm. the kids are learning their way through things. And I think, um, it's good that at a certain age to start thinking about your strengths. Like I'm mm -hmm. coaching, I'm coaching actually a kid now that's 17 or 18 is just finishing high school. And the program he's applying for in university is quite difficult, requires not just academics, but they interview you and it's looking a lot at soft skills and this and that. And so I've been helping him uh, giving a few sessions to prepare for that and it's amazing because he's got I think he's got great parents and he's got a really good sense uh, you know and can verbalize kind of some things that are important not that he has a very clear this is my mission this is my this but yeah really understands like what his strengths are what his core strengths and interests are as well as some supporting ones and some of them he realizes are a little different like he likes this but he also isn't you know something's more scientific based something more artistic based and he's kind of starting to feel his way around what's primary and what's supportive. And is it okay to have this combination? Right. And, mm. and a lot of it, I think with learning is just sort of getting awareness of that, realizing that you have choices and you should make them upon reflection and, and, and good kind of support mm -hmm. and then having the, the trust, like having the self-trust and the courage to, to mm -hmm. act on those and to seek out ever more kind of under a, an age, a model of agency and ownership ever more strongly as you get older with, you know, what kind of learning you seek out and how you learn and who you seek out and what type of programs and how that translates to your work and how you, um, how you find your place in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I'm hearing like the importance of having a safe space. I'm hearing the importance mm -hmm. of um, being curious and following those, like, let's say breadcrumbs. Um, yeah the things that kind of shine a bit brighter for you. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also hearing the importance of trusting it. Like if you're possibly curious about something, maybe explore it a bit and see yeah. what it's about. And maybe do you want to continue or do you not want to continue? Mm -hmm. um, those are seeming to be like experiment and trust your intuition, like the breadcrumbs, like really you follow the breadcrumbs on your intuition. And it takes a lot of people. I know it took me like way, way longer than I would have liked to kind of just trust a certain intuition and say, I'm not interested in that. Or, you know what? I'm really interested in this. It's maybe yeah. not a typical thing people learn, even if it's learning just as a hobby, but I'm going to, I'm going to chase what I'm most um, passionate about. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's awesome. Okay. Um, so there's something I find. Okay. So because I did not grow up in Canada, there is sometimes I feel as though like there are things I'm, did, I was not aware of or I didn't have exposure okay. to. So for example, um, one of them is sometimes music. Like people mention artists and things and I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about and I have to Google it. Another thing that maybe, comes Andrea, up, maybe you maybe you just weren't cool enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's also that too. Um, I mean, no, I'm in... I'm I, I am <laughs> totally paused. I was not one of the cool kids, but I I, I am confident you were. <laughs> I was not actually. I was no? like a quiet like teachers bookworm. loved me. Okay, I had a variety of different friends, but I wasn't yeah bookwormish <laughs> um, in the oh, library man. a lot. Um, okay didn't really get into trouble. <laughs> Very quiet. Yeah, that was me. But another thing that comes up a lot, um, I find with not only yourself, but like I, it comes up often is this um, show, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. It seems to be a core aspect of a lot of people's childhoods. And you have this amazing and yes. intense fascination with Mr. Rogers. And I'd love to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I, I will say, I know, because we've had a few discussions with it and had a feeling you'd ask me about this. And um, <laughs> of course, I mean, let me just say who he is for people that don't know, because it's not probably accurate that a lot of people remember him deeply. Mm -hmm. I think people more my age would if you reminded them who he was, mm -hmm. although there was sort of a renaissance of Mr. Rogers recently. There was a Hollywood movie with Tom Hanks in it, and it was a very good documentary. And there's been quite a few books lately published on various aspects. But mm -hmm. so for those of you who don't know, I mean, Mr. Rogers, it was actually a show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was on PBS. It was on public television in the U.S. In Canada, I'm guessing I probably got it on, like, TVO or, or, or something, uh, CBC maybe. I'm not sure what it was on. But, but anyways, um, so it was a, a children's show that went on for close to 30 years. Um, really, it was off the air for a couple of years, and it came back. And But I think all in all, like, 30 years. It started like nine, late 1960s, I think 1968 mm. or nine. Um, and so Mr. Rogers was this, I mean, I, I'll say it from the perspective of nowadays because times have changed so much, but I mean, I think people looking at it now would think, A, he's super nerdy, like he's a really nerdy guy. He comes in and puts on his cardigan that his mom knit him and his changes his um, kind of loafers or whatever, or his dress shoes for, you know, these little kids running shoes. And he's in his, this imaginary house and he does the show and it's not high tech. And that was very conscious. So there's no, you know, special effects and loud, like, you know, sound effects and uh, stuff like that. It's very slow paced. I mean, at that time, it was probably early on, 
fairly typical, but I think as time passed and he was very insistent that he keep the show the same, right? Uh, with mm -hmm. small evolutions. So I think over time, more and more, it seemed like the, you know, the, the crazy kid shows, because kid shows eventually just became like, I don't know, I've seen some of them now with my children and, and it just seems like variations of insanity. Like it's really just wild and crazy and so fast. And I mean, nothing to do with learning really. It's just kind of zany entertainment. Mm really, I mean, really, really crazy uh, stuff, right? And he was this very kind of stalwart guy that very much believed, this is the way he put it, that what he wanted to do with television, what television had the, the real ability to do, especially public television, because he was an advocate of that, was to educate our children. And, and I mean, educate, I guess, lifelong too, too as we get older. Mm -hmm. And and he decided to devote his life. He studied music and then he decided to devote his life to children's education. He ended up getting a master's in child psychology. He worked with one of the leading child psychologists of the time. So the show had a very rigorous um, research and practice base to it. Um, mm -hmm. He also was a very religious man. The, the show is, is not overtly in any way a religious show, but he really saw his calling um, to be to... Um, educate children but for him that didn't mean sort of content or subject so by that I mean it wasn't like what Sesame Street say would do where let's learn math numbers counting let's learn words and letters and how you know words go together and, and stuff like that um, he was really about learning how to learn like developing kids curiosity developing mm -hmm. their wonder like for him the sense of wonder and you always say when you're wondering you're learning and had little songs about this right and when the show started you know it zooms into this imaginary neighborhood and there's a yellow light flashing like there's a stoplight and yellow light flashing I never noticed what that was but reading a great book that I'll mention in a minute pointed out that that means like slow down right like oh. you're entering a space that's slow right and so what you really see in that show, um, and, and as I said, it had a bit of a renaissance. Like I've always been, like I grew up on it and I kind of liked Mr. Rogers probably long after most kids like of the age that I was at stopped watching him, but I just, I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I remember rediscovering him because I read something on him in university about, it was like about using the land of make-believe and how much children's shows and children's literature do that to teach values, to teach um, curiosity to teach kindness to teach all of these things mm. right and uh, I ended up researching them a bit and I had in a Shakespeare class um, I had to write an essay on Midsummer Night's Dream and in Midsummer Night's Dream it has this kind of Shakespeare does this kind of thing where there's a play within a play and it's a very fanciful almost children's kind of fantasy play within the play but mm -hmm. again something is learned that can only be learned in its gentleness and in its sort of avoiding people vulner people's vulnerability or people's biases or whatever. And anyways, I, I, in the essay, I compared that to Mr. Rogers. I remember my professor like thinking that was a interesting but odd thing to do. So I've always had this. And a number of years ago, like when the Renaissance started happening where a documentary was made of him, then Tom Hanks played him in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, I started noticing, cause I have some Google alerts for various topics I'm interested in that people were doing master's theses and PhD theses on his pedagogy, the underlying pedagogy of the show. So I started re-watching it again, just trying to, and instantly saw, because I'd been many years on and had studied learning now and practice learning, that I was like, oh, this very simple looking show has a profound and systematic pedagogy underlying it. 
that informs everything. And I kind of, there's like four or five things, if I can just summarize what I think makes it not only like a completely unique children's show, but a vision of learning that like we still haven't caught up to. Um, mm. The first thing is the learning space. Like you were mentioning the safe space earlier, right? He comes into this home and you're in this very simple home. It's designed very simply. So everything in it is part of the learning. Um, it's not overwhelming in any way. He lets you know right away that he's like welcome to this home. There's many ways that both overtly and kind of uh, implicitly he talks about or, or creates that safe space for learning. It's a space where you're going to be curious together, where learning is really valued, where mistakes mm -hmm. are okay, where, you know, it's kind of like saying like, I'm here and there's other characters that come and go like we're here to help you begin to figure yourself out as a unique human being, right? Yeah. That's kind of the message in the, in the big picture. And they, they create a space for that. That thing that I just said would probably be the second and maybe the most important thing that I, I find so beautiful about him is he, he sings a song at the beginning of episode, basically that there's only one person just like you. And he's, he's always just talking right to it. And he said in interviews always, I just imagine myself talking to one kid out there that mm -hmm. maybe doesn't get the nurturing or the care they need. And he just lets them know they're important the way they are, like not if they can grow or they can learn or they can do something, they'll be important, but just the way you are right now, you're important. You belong here, you matter. Mm -hmm. And you have something like gifts or something you have to share. And that journey, like we all have dreams, we have fears, we have, you know, we, we have a certain pride, we have all these great capacities, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that discovering those, like that journey of yours has relevance. And we're going to start on that journey together. Um, and, and I mean, he's aiming this at, I mean, that the age of the show is probably age four to seven or eight, maybe. Um, mm. Second theme, or the third theme, I think I did learning space, um, the, the, the intrinsic value of every unique individual. The other would be like wonder and curiosity has this song that, that says, when you wonder, you're when you wonder, you're learning. And so talking very openly about curiosity, right? And, you know, he has this amazing uh, episode. When the show came back in the, like, he did it for a while and then he paused. I think he wasn't quite happy with it. And then he relaunched it, like, after a year or two break. And then the themes, because he always themed things. Instead of a theme being an episode, a theme was like a week. And so he mm -hmm. has this week and it's talked about in this great book. Um, the book, I should mention the title. I just mentioned it. It's actually the name of the song. I just said, when you wonder, you're learning. It's a it's a great book that came out, I think about a year, year and a half ago. Um, okay. and it looks at his pedagogy in quite a systematic way, but it, it talks about the week of curiosity that he does when, when he comes back, right. And does his show and he has a week long curiosity and in the, he has the land of make belief in the show. It's done with puppets and there's this King and the King sort of nowadays, or, or in my younger days, we'd call him the man, right? Like he's the man or the, the, like the powers that be that, that are always yeah. ruining kids fun and don't allow freedom and don't. And anyways, in the episode, because his subjects, if you will, are, and his son, who's the prince are coming up with all these wonderful and crazy ideas. And they're starting with their curiosity to question certain rules the king has, right. And coming <laughs> up with different ones and newer ones. And, and he starts to see curiosity as a real threat, right. And it's quite profound because this is playing out in like a very light, like a puppet show. And it's all tailored for the age, it's age appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's starting to make like, an, as the episodes go on, a real statement about like how 
you know, leaders throughout time have feared like curiosity and, and individual empowerment, right? And curiosity. And so anyways, he bans curiosity. King, he's called King Friday the 13th. And, mm -hmm. and he's funny, like he's slapstick a bet because he's got all these kind of old rules and he's very stubborn and narrow and everything, but it always backfires. But anyways, he bans curiosity. And I think that's in the first episode. And then over the week, like over the five episodes, various things come up where they need to solve problems where people are revolting, where people want to go find a place where they can be curious. And anyways, his, his, uh, his kingdom is crumbling, right? And I don't remember all the nuances, but at the end, he realizes he's wants to be curious about things too, right? And that he's missing out as well. And anyway, so of course it ends with him reinstating curiosity um, mm -hmm. and encouraging wonder and questioning and, and big questions, the why questions, right? And, mm -hmm. and that, and so that curiosity is kind of, excuse me, core to his pedagogy, Mr. Rogers. Um, the, the next thing that I loved is I didn't really get this when I was young, I think. I mean, it wasn't meant to be God in a, in a conscious way. It's just unconscious. But he had a lot of artists on and a lot of people that did jobs and not just art in the sense of like, I mean, I know he had a sculptor. He had Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist on a number of times um a young violin a very young violinist once mm. um, but also people just making really rudimentary things like my job is to fix a shoe or whatever like that and but when he did it he would just let it play out so you'd watch a guy sculpting and he'd mm. say oh wow look at him look at the way he plays with that clay it was never like you should do this or this and that and the mm. idea was kids were watching and being exposed to things without any bias like this is good mm -hmm. this is bad this is whatever just things that they might like to do and they started noticing like um the child psychologist brought him that idea of like watch people do things without commentary and she had proven in her studies that when you exposed like kindergartners and grade ones to the sculptor just pounding the clay with no that that mm -hmm. over the next few weeks they would go over and get the clay on their own and try it and some of them would that was like the thing others would go put it back because it was not the thing right and mm -hmm. so he was very much I guess creating that space to say like what are you in love with what do you find most interesting what are you most curious about and if you mm -hmm. obviously like play that out over you know if that that mindset played out throughout primary school and secondary school and that, that question of what are you in love with, um, mm -hmm. what are you most passionate about, is going to evolve into, I think, like a question like, what might I become? How might I, what might my calling be? Or how might I engage with the world um, through a form of, of work that um, allows me to, to extend that? Um, mm. and, and that's really, it. Oh, sorry, one more thing I should say about him. The other thing is when he was asked always about like, what is the content of the show like so you're teaching them how to learn and how to be curious in that but is there like any mess ultimate content message or whatever I remember he was asked by a interviewer and he paused and he said yeah yeah, yeah there's three things and I was like leaning in because I never really noticed it like I mean he feeds his fish he does art but I never saw like a real subject the way as he said in Sesame Street you learn to count or something like that and so yeah. he said there's three things and so I'm leaning in like what are these three things going to be and he says be kind be kind and be kind oh my goodness and he had a way of talking that was like even when he talked to adults it was like mm -hmm. mimicked the way he would talk to children right and mm -hmm. so I thought that was good and you realize the more you watch him right that he 
he believed, like we talk a lot about, in, in, especially in organizations now, creating a culture of learning. Mm -hmm. And I often thought, like, what would Mr. Rogers, if he went into a company like I've often done, like to doing strategy and creating a learning ecosystem, or whatever, what would, the, how would I want people to describe that? And, and I keep thinking, like, Mr. Rogers' culture of learning was learning filled with kindness, filled yeah. with wonder, and, um, and gratitude. He was always like, he won like a daytime Emmy and he won the Presidential Medal of Honor um, before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And, during his spe acceptance speeches, and, and he got a number of honorary degrees and stuff, he would always make people pause for like a minute of silence and he would ask them to think about or, or, or to reflect upon or bring to mind all of those people who helped love you into existence. That's the way he would say mm -hmm. it. And I thought, you know, again, we talk nowadays about gratitude and how important that is for our mental well being and all sorts of things, but he was just always reminding people to appreciate um those people who love you and teach because because that for him was teaching like those people were all teaching you they were all your your teachers and that obviously you know that I, I think by implication would encourage you as you grow up to be one of those those people so yeah mm -hmm. that, that's my obsession with Mr. Rogers and some <laughs> people when I say it they pause and they're like the guy the children's show guy that wore the sweaters and um, yeah, and uh, there's, there's a whole museum and center that continues his work in Pittsburgh. And one of my goals this mm -hmm. summer, I think, is to drive down there with my kids. I'm, I'm probably going to be way more interested than them. They're uh, thir uh, 12 and 13 now. But anyways, mm -hmm. I'm going to go down there. It's going to be a little bit of a, like a mission or, a, or a, I don't know what you'd call it, a journey uh, mm -hmm. to go down there and um, meet my, meet, virtually meet my mentor, meet my mentor in spirit. Oh, that's really nice. Um, you know, it's interesting. So you got me to watch a few episodes of Mr. Yeah. Rogers um, in preparation for this conversation. I really liked it. And I can remember the um, the traffic signal when he zoomed in yeah. and the light was flashing. So now that makes a bit more sense. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the episodes I really loved was where he was um, interviewing... He took the he took us to meet a hula hoop um, artist, oh, right? Yeah, okay. I think I know that one. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I think that as kids, it's nice to have exposure to different types of careers and see that that is possible. Yeah, not yeah. just you know the the nurse or the doctor or the lawyer. There's other things too. And there was this guy who was just talking about how much he loved um, being a hula hoop artist and showing the different things you can do with it. And I loved also that Mr. Rogers was like trying to learn how to hula hoop you know and being patient with himself very awkward I don't think he was much of a physical guy but yeah no but yeah and he was okay with that you know and it kept falling and eventually he got it to go a little bit so it's almost that like um patience and compassion with yourself Absolutely. throughout the process and so they were talking about not just learning but also the process of learning you know Absolutely. um the guy was sharing how it took like two months to get one single trick a really quick simple trick but it took in some time. And I think yep. sometimes we forget that, well, sometimes we don't have patience with ourselves to learn something. And sometimes mm -hmm. we forget that it requires time. And that was yep. a nice reminder when I looked at the episode. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. And one thing you said there that's important, right, is that one of the things I came to learn when I rediscovered him, and this is talked about somewhat, it's, it's, it's present in the documentary, certainly in the movie a little bit, Mm -hmm. present a little more in this the book I mentioned and but I don't think 
maybe present as much as people could say, and that is that he comes across very much in his demeanor as just the gentlest, quietest, most considerate guy, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and he's always down on his knees when he talks to children. If he's engaging with children, he gets down to their level. And the, But he's, radic- he's pretty radical in, in a number of ways. I mean, I think just, again, creating a pedagogy based around kindness and gratitude and that one could see as, mm-hmm. as radical um, in the world and hanging on to it, you know, throughout Absolutely. the entire and not changing it. But in other ways, like when you were just saying about the hula hoop, like I noticed because he always goes out in the neighborhood and shows people things. And he usually it's again to expose them to different things, but it's not kind of hierarchical the way we think about it. So it's not Mm -hmm. just let's go see the dentist and the doctor and whatever, because those are important jobs. But I mean, there's an episode where he's got a hole in his shoe and he can't walk and he's worried. And so he goes to the cobbler and the cobbler talks to him and he shows you again, you see the mechanics of how detailed this is. And that mm. he talks about, you know, Mr. Rogers will ask him, you know, why did you become a cobbler? And was that hard or, oh, that looks hard. You know, what does that machine do? And then mm. at the end, he's delighted because his shoes are fixed and he can walk. So he always personalizes. And what he's showing you, because it's always within a neighborhood, is that everybody in that neighborhood um, has a role to play. A second quick story that I think it's in the documentary film, they make it a key scene that that shows kind of, you know, the, the, the seriousness of intent beneath a lot of what he's doing is um, one of the really early shows kind of 69 or 70, um, you know, it, 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 it's uh, still in, in, in the heat of the civil rights era. And America is really so much still this battleground for, for mm-hmm. so much um, of it. And you know, he was always mindful of all of the things playing out that that children of various backgrounds would be seeing in their homes and their neighborhoods and news and television. I mean, he addressed the first Iraq war when it happened. He dealt mm-hmm. with sickness and death and divorce, all these topics. But in this particular one, apparently, as the story goes, there it was there was an Olympics and an African-American woman um, uh, won. I don't know if it was bronze, silver, or gold, but she won a medal in the Olympics in swimming. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, you know, she was, you know, you, you're kind of the toast of the town or whatever. And so she was invited down to do, I guess it was an interview on the news or a photo shoot or something at a, at a famous hotel in, in Los Angeles. And she was photographed on, you know, in, in her um, Olympic swimsuit on like the diving board and with her toe in the water and she jumped in and she swam. And anyway, so this, this happened. The way it made the news, though, was that after she left, the the hotel drained the pool cleaned it and Mm. rebuilt it right and especially the probably the you know the east coast press and that made a big deal they were just very like you know terrible like that that they would do that right and so but but the way it plays out in mr rogers so great is so mr rogers was very conscious um right from the beginning to have a diversity of, of of characters and temperaments in his show and so there was a police officer that dropped by from time to time, and he was a very friendly, sort of jolly police officer, uh, and he was black. And so in this particular episode, it starts, it's a really hot day, and Mr. Rogers is like thinking of ways he can cool down, and he goes in the backyard, and he's got this little kiddie pool, and he's filling it with cold water, and you know, wow, this is refreshing. <laughs> then his friend drops by, and his friend, of course, is this, this police officer. And so he says, oh, it's such a hot day, I bet you're hot in that, you know, black uniform you're wearing, 
I was just going to dip my feet into this kiddie pool that I've got cold water in just because I think it would be refreshing. Would you like to join me? And the guy says, oh, well, you know, I don't have like a towel. And Mr. Rogers is like, oh, I have a towel. Like, don't worry. And he's like, oh, well, he's like, come on, you know. And so anyways, the Mr. Rogers and the police officer both take off their shoes. They take off their socks, mm -hmm. um, put their feet in. And there's like no commentary. This is very typical of Mr. Rogers, right? It just holds the scene plays out with them talking and just, you know, how refreshing it is. But the camera the whole time is on the pool and the feet. Mm. And you see in the water, Mr. Rogers' feet and this African-American uh, police officer that, you know, character in the show's feet. And at the end, Mr. Rogers towels off his feet. And I thought mm. it's a beautiful moment because I mentioned, you know, Mr. Rogers was, was religious. He studied as a Presbyterian minister. Um, yeah. And, you know, never proselytized or never, never brought that into the show. But that image of like washing the feet, right, is an mm. image, right, Jesus would wash the feet. And so it's just this beautiful, they're not only in the water together, but he dries him off and this and that. And there's lots of examples. I mean, that's just one, but there's examples throughout the show of just like, yes, he's teaching kids to be kind and to be gentle and to reflect with each other on who they might become. But he's also has like this strong, like moral, ethical backbone that he's gently um, getting you to understand that you can have agency in and you can um, make a difference. And so I guess, as I said, the more I discovered this all, you know, during COVID, when I really stepped back from work, um, I started working more independently and, and studying coaching. And then I became a coach. And I sort of thought, like, what is my dream? Like, what if I really follow my courage and my intuition? And I thought, yeah. I want to do, not a TV show per se, but do training, do a course, do a YouTube, something that's like Mr. Rogers for grownups. Like, what would that <laughs> be from, okay. from a pedagogy, but also from a, from a lessons? Like, what? Mm. Take those? And, and, and it doesn't, some things translate very obviously, a lot of the values in that, but obviously a lot of the methods and the approach are very different for uh, a grown-up audience. So understanding how that translation might take place is something mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about the last uh, the last year. Okay, so that's interesting because I yeah you're right from what I've seen where Mr. Rogers is really geared towards you know younger children right. Um, yeah. But it seems that from what you're saying as though a lot of what he's teaching is really applicable to human beings, not only of a particular sure. age. Yeah. So because yeah. you've been reflecting on this for the past year and you have a much more in-depth knowledge on Mr. Rogers than I do, I guess the question that comes to mind for me is, what would that look like if we were to take the Mr. Rogers pedagogy way of being and apply it to adults? Like how yeah. can we translate that so that sure. we and I can all benefit from it? Yeah, and I... I won't say I have it all figured out or I would um, launch an initiative. Hopefully that would be that. so that's Please. my goal <laughs> to make it tangible, right? Mm. And I started sketching it out more tangibly um, early on, like, like eight or nine months ago, mm -hmm. and then realized that I needed to slow down and get some of the, not only the core kind of universal things that are in Mr. Rogers that would apply to humans, as you said, of any age, mm -hmm. but also really start to think about the differences in agency and learning um, that adults have. The other thing is that kids are naturally curious. And, and the more I thought about my experience working with adult 
um, learners for the last 20 years or so is mm. a lot of those faculties that make learning powerful and open and, and, and free and self-developing uh, um, are have kind of like evaporated. I, I, I don't believe they fully mm. evaporate. I mean, they're there still, but they haven't been valued. They haven't been nurtured. And there's the sense, as I said, that while you're still learning in casual ways, core learning is like over because I graduated, right, or whatever. And mm -hmm. so I thought that has to play into it. But so, so what I did is I started sketching out what it might look like, and I, and I did it around themes. And eventually what I realized, Andrea, was like I had to put myself through this. So I sketched out a high-level curriculum. I realized it's something that, like, it's a slow process because slow, slow, reflective, methodical, self-aware mm -hmm. is, is big with Mr. Rogers. So I kind of thought it's something I'm going to play it out over a year. I'm going to take the next year and I'm going to sketch out a rough curriculum and follow it because it's it's got to be a curriculum for adults that isn't about sitting and watching something. Um, there's some guidance, but it's really about what are you doing? How are you taking ownership mm -hmm. of learning? And so I created 12 themes that I thought I could engage in for one month each. And I've, I tentatively, it's just a working title, it's just not very interesting, but the year of learning differently. Um, okay. And the first month really was to reconnect with wonder and awe. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say curiosity because I think curiosity then comes out of that, right? But wonder and awe, and by that, I mean like, this is why I first took up the dog sledding because it kind of was way outside my comfort zone, but I knew when mm -hmm. I watched and thought about it, it was tapping into something really deep, like something mm -hmm. really primal, but but like with a sense of wonder and beauty and so that, right? And and there's other things in my life that I you know, get into the details of my own, but just that put me in that state of wonder and awe and, and, and kind of start to spur that, that curiosity of wanting to go more in that direction and learn. And it's a learning that as you're learning, it's changing you. Like if the learning isn't changing you, like I've been dog sledding a couple of times now, I'm planning a much longer trip next year. I'm also doing some deep north journeying uh, in, in the summer up to the Arctic Circle because I want to see the northern lights. And I mean, for me, that's, it's not the end all and be all of it, but it's, it's starting to reconnect with, with wonder and awe. There's certain mm -hmm. types of music that help me do that as well. And really not theorize on it too much, but just immerse myself in that, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second month is really just like about embodied learning, because I think the learning that I was always good at and that I naturally tend to is very much in my head, right? It's very much like theoretical learning. So I'm like yeah. the type that would like read a book about going camping, but not actually go camping. <laughs> so I'm, I'm prioritizing embodied learning and, mm -hmm. and, and personal learning and trusting my intuition, trusting my gut, what I'm reading now, what I'm engaging with, what things I'm doing, even things I'm trying to do with my kids. It's taping, taking things that resonate deeply with me, but that are like embodied, like they, they take place with a full person, right? And mm -hmm. that is opening me up and that I think plays in. Um, a big part of it is just more deeply exploring my values, um, my strengths, seeing what I feel are gifts like that I have that are valuable and unique. And more and more over time, I mean, I've had a sense of that. I've applied some, but mm -hmm. it's kind of like, and I really realized this with coaching because when I was studying coaching, I know you've, you've studied coaching as well. You're not only learning to coach, but you are coached. And I reveled like in being coached because it was cracking me open and kind of pushing me to be truthful like you know you kind of have a vague sense of your values and what's most important and what's passionate but 
go with intensity now, like learn intensely where I am with what I already have, right? Not looking mm-hmm. out there for other stuff. Learn to be super truthful with yourself, even if it's sometimes not what you want to hear. Or it's hard to bear. Um, beyond that, I mean, in this year of learning differently, like there's mechanics of learning, like a lot of people have never been taught how to learn. And that mm-hmm. sounds obvious, but I mean, this is big concept. They call it metacognition sometimes now, which isn't quite the right word because that's more like thinking about thinking, but learning about learning is a little different because learning is more than just thinking. But mm-hmm. anyways, learning the mechanics of learning, like what does it mean to be attend to something, right? This is what cognitive scientists talk a lot about. How do you structure learning? What level of structure? Um, what level of scaffolding? Because learning, you know, there's 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 this horizontal way of a version of learning where you're discovering certain things and you're exploring right but as you get more deeply and more aware of things there's this scaffolding sense where you're getting I tend to think of it as deeper rather than climbing up right but I mean that might be an easier thing to illustrate like there's levels right like if you're Mm -hmm. passionate about math there's fundamentals but you're going to build and build and build and it gets more rich and more complex so you need to understand that you you really I mean one of the things I've been amazed in coaching and I've only been doing it for a year but is teaching people about the questions that they should ask of themselves and others when they're seeking to know things deeply right Mm. things deeply ideas deeply and other people like those deep communication listening and and questioning skills and I think learning to ask good and powerful nuanced questions is something that we never really learn but is so fundamental to learning and with that, then immediately, because you're getting responses, you're learning, like moving from knowledge to deeper understanding, learning what has value to you and what might not have value, discernment, judgment, some critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, I mean, I won't go through them all, but one of the ones that I had left out in a first draft and I'm really realizing is key with myself and I'm seeing a lot in, in coaching too, is courage, like self-trust. Mm-hmm developing a voice and then having agency with that voice and using that voice with others. And I'm talking voice, capital V and gaining um, confidence in it and courage in it. Because I mean, you figure out what you're really passionate about learning and therefore doing and like finding your way in the world. Mm -hmm. It's often not what you thought or not what others thought, or like you said of the hula hoop guy, like, and if you do this exercise and you realize that your dream is to be like a hula hoop, guy at, at I don't know children's birthday parties or where do you would do it right like <laughs> that's a heavy burden to bear you know <laughs> you need some courage there so anyways that's that's just a, a a taste but um as I said I'm putting myself through it and uh um learning a lot more and 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 as I learn doing it and I've got some people that are helping me bounce ideas off but I'm hoping to to do some sort of trial like pilot trial run next year um that is and again I don't know what I'll call it now it's kind of Mr. Rogers for growing up as I said I call it the year of learning differently yeah Um, and I don't know if it'll be a year like I I feel like for a person to really learn how to learn and make it personal embodied for them and for no one else is Mm. not something that's going to come quick not a year when I say that is like you're in school for a year right this is like a set of exercises a set of things and a group that you would kind of be accountable to and, you know, it's, it's hopefully an adventure. Like I, I've been a couple months pursuing it now and it's seeming like an adventure and it's seeming like I need to push myself way harder. Like the, the activities and the things I set for myself to help me 
kind of open myself up and grow and and, and that are, are now seeming a bit too tame, right? <laughs> getting, getting a <laughs> I don't <worse>. know. <laughs> no. I think you've been doing some really adventurous things, but it's great that you're seeing the, the space for more and you're having the interest in more. That's really awesome. Mm. Um, and I, I like as well that you're creating the program, but you're also experiencing it and learning yeah. through the doing of it. Um, and I guess tweaking it in that way as well oh, throughout yeah. that process. That's yeah. a, that, I mean, you're doing the actual work as you're testing out the work. Yeah, and a good friend of mine who actually is a coach, and she coached me a lot, and, and it was very embodied, like mindful coaching, and uh, I was telling her about it, and she said, like, and I gave a version when I just said to you about I would read a book on camping, but not go camping, I gave a different version to her of, like, learn about riding a bike, but not actually getting on the bike, right? Yeah. And he sent me a little video of, like, when it was my birthday, this is the year of getting on the bike, Rob, and I realized that she was saying to me is, like, you're intellectually shaping this curriculum and you're, you know, you're going to do the marketing and you know how to do learning programs. So you're going to launch it, but mm -hmm. that's all very like heady up here. Like try it out, like run it, yeah. like get on the bike. That's what you just said is like, get on the bike. And so, yeah. And I think like, I, one thing I know for sure about adult education um, that, that works is the more hands-on and embodied it is like, if you're just sitting there and learning theory, learning, I mean, corporate training, mm. even good stuff tends to 90% be really just information transfer. And yes. even when that is totally not suited to the sort of learning or, or development task at hand. And with what I'm interested in doing, I realized like theory has got to be 10 or 15%. It's sort of like the view and gives you the landscape or the map, but mm -hmm it's all about doing and reflecting and it's mm -hmm. got to be like it, it practice is is it's a type of learning that is almost entirely practice mm -hmm. that's um i think through that type of learning as well you make connections that you wouldn't normally make just through absorbing information so it takes the learning deeper or as you would say with the scaffolding example higher and more rich mm, and more meaningful yeah. as well you know, it's interesting because in the past few years, I feel like there are a lot of people around me. Some people have been learning about themselves more deeply um, over the past few years, but there have been also people who have been exploring different things that they were curious about, like the like the um, the sourdough bread making movement, right? Or like the <laughs> um, the learning to play an instrument, or the learning to play a uh, 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 learning language, or even um, learning new recipes. There's been all this kind of um, self-directed learning that people have been doing, at least around me that I'm seeing, that's really inspiring. Um, and I'm seeing all the joy that they're getting from it as well, um, which is really amazing yeah. to see. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, that's one of the, I guess, upsides for a certain group of people. I know it's super tough for, for so many, but mm. an upside for some people, especially people that had the, the benefit of sort of a continuous job that they could do from home because mm -hmm. they had a little more time on their hands. They weren't like, you know, stuck in traffic and doing that and started exactly. to do this. Yeah, I definitely knew some people that cooking is one of my major hobbies. And I noticed um, a rise and some of it was maybe just in the people I was following, but in Twitter, people just like it started with sourdough for some weird reason. And um, but quickly moved to people just like exploring 
things and cooking more from home and and doing that. And, and what I loved about that, like it was learning, but I always love when learning immediately relates or impacts things around you. Because I mean, mm-hmm. if you're now learning to cook, like my daughter is is always been interested in cooking more baking, but has, has done it more and more. And during uh, COVID definitely did it more, but it was like bringing it to her grandparents or her brother. Yeah. And when things lifted a bit, bringing it to school. Right. And so I love this idea that I think I mentioned earlier, like learning the two sides of the coin being like self-discovery and looking at those gifts and the strengths and the, where you're nervous and what you're most passionate about. But the flip side of that is, okay, so now what does this mean to how you find your place uh, in the world, right? And mm-hmm. because often when you learn these great new things, you want to share them sometimes just as, hey, look at what I learned. But often in a way to give back. So if I learn how to cook or I learn how to play music, well, you know, bring, bring the guitar to the next, uh, to the first like opening dinner party after COVID and show us what you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like to share it. So that's, um, that, uh, I think brings us to another, another topic, right? Mm. Another part of this conversation, yeah. which is how can, I, we've touched on this a bit as well already. How can we use learning for self-discovery to find our place in the world? Yeah, that's that's a good. I know. I know. Uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier as like a wrap-up question, being like the self-discovery mm-hmm. of finding your place as being kind of like a a simple definition of learning in a broad sense. And so. Um, yeah, I mean, everything we've talked about really is is leading towards this. I think, mm. you know, it, it needs to be, when I said embodied, um, you know, that's a word that's used, a body is a word that's used a lot in, I don't know, if you take yoga, you hear it a lot. If you um, do <laughs> mindfulness training or, you know, it's these things like embodied is really big. But I think in the broadest sense, it's just like, you've got to own your own learning, like your own learning can't be out there. It's, it's in a book somewhere or, Oh, it's way back in my past. Like when I went to school or maybe one day when I retire, I'll, I'll take, I'm really passionate about this. I'll take that up and learn about that. Right. But it's like really like placing your self as learner, like Mm -hmm. at the center of yourself in the here and now, because you're not just learning. Like when I think about the things that have really opened me up to new learning, and I was saying some of them like to, to challenge myself more like, yes, it's been, you know, overnight dog sledding and doing things that are kind of adventurous and that. And, but it's not just that, right. It's just like, oh, and just how I interact with my son and it, you know, what does he need? And my daughter needs very different things. So how can I learn that and reflect on that? Right. Um, it might be, you, you have a dish you like to cook and you, you think of like, what's missing from that? How could I do it better? Or where do I want to take that next? Mm-hmm. So very small, like everyday things, and you need mm-hmm. to bring it down to that. You know, when you learn like poetry and art, they always talk about developing your own voice. And I think learning is understanding your own gifts, but how they manifest themselves is, you know, capital V voice or whatever you'd say as a metaphor, but that voice is in conversation with everything else. And you know, when, when we were talking about doing this podcast, you know, we were, um, uh, I was sharing with you that definition of genius from uh, a book by David White, the poet David White, he's got a book called Consolations. Mm-hmm. And I think it's called, yeah, Consolations. And he takes like 20 or 25 words that he thinks are sort of pregnant with meaning and, and you know, could be 
explored, right? And so it's a book, like he's a poet and he's also a philosopher, sort of a writer. He writes some interesting stuff, writes a lot of interesting stuff about work mm-hmm. and, and what work can be. But, um, but he, he, anyways, he defines these words and one of the words he defines is genius. And it's interesting because we think of genius like in a modern day meaning as like a genius is somebody that's unbelievably intelligent and yes. smart, right? And he reminds us that um, genius, and I knew this just from when, you know, you study literature at State University, you do a lot of etymology and like the origins of words or how words changed over time, especially if you're going back and reading like, you know, literature from the 13th or 1400s or the Renaissance, right? Like mm-hmm. you've got to understand that words don't necessarily mean the same thing. But anyway, so he reminds in it that genius in its original mean is this idea that everything like every place has a genius to it. So, you know, if you imagine like, I don't know, I, I was watching something recently. It was a, a detective show, but it took place in like North Ireland. And it was amazing because he'd be standing there on the shore and there was like no vegetation in sight except moss. Like there's, it's beyond the tree lines, no trees. So it's like rocks and moss and a million. And they, the cinematographer in the show is great because it took a lot of time to capture all the different shades and nuances and textures of the moss and the rocks mm. and the cold water coming in and they would always show him standing there thinking and the wind would always come from a certain direction and there was always a sound of I don't know what type of birds it would have been but there was always a bird sound right mm-hmm. and that th- you would say like that's the genius of the place right it's got its own um, history the stones are weathered and look like that through centuries or, or millennia right and um the way the wind is and the way the wind feels to him. And there's probably a very unique smell like sea air, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, there's other places that have rocks and moss and the sea, mm-hmm. but they'll be totally different and unique. And a big part of learning, I guess I would say, or, or getting really aware, because I think so much of great learning is being aware of like just listening deeply, 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 asking good questions and listening deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, the nuances, right? You realize that place is totally unique and totally different and there's no other place like it. And that's its particular genius. But anyways, what, what David White says in the book is that just like places are geniuses, we are geniuses. If you think of us as like an embodied person, like body, you know, emotions, cognition, uh, whatever, like mm-hmm. you as a genius, right? And you've got, you're sort of this meeting place of like, where your parents were from and what you learned growing up. So your past, and <clears throat> I've been aware lately because my father's quite old and I'm trying to do a little bit of a family tree because I want to, before he passes on, understand at least six or seven generations back, like who were these people? I never really thought of them, but they must have impacted me. Or I, there, There's gotta be some sort of renaissance, resonance, sorry, that I, that yeah. I feel. And you think of that and you've got your own unique desires and passions. You've got your own growing up and your successes and your failures and your vulnerabilities and all of this, but you've also got projected before you certain opportunities and certain choices to take, and then you'll pass on. And so he says like each individual person is a genius too. And he views like development, or I would say the way I read it, he views learning and development as Mm -hmm. this ongoing like learning as a path of self-discovery and finding your place in the world but not as something way out there something that you're always experiencing and he has this great phrase where he says something like your voice in conversation with 
the elements and everything else around you. So it's rather than like, there's a goal out there so much learning. And I, this is one thing I really dislike about corporate learning and most of um, leadership learning is these big goals way out there. And at the end of the year, mm -hmm. at some point in the future, I'm going to reach those and it's very linear and it cuts off so much. Right. And mm -hmm. he's very much more like, yes, you're moving forward. Yes. And you're growing, but there's elements whirling around you and there's the wind and there's the unique people, you know, and people come and go and there's work and there's like things that stir in your soul. As you said, like COVID happens and suddenly you decide I want to, you know, learn to play an instrument. Right. So there's this rich conversation going on with everything else around you. Right. Mm -hmm. And realize that in that your genius is to be you uniquely is to give back with your voice um, to grow, to give to others, to receive from others. Right. Um, and so, you know, like the training you do in school, the training you do in companies, the, the goals that are set for you by others, like that's, that's good. That's part of it. But, um, you don't want to rely on learning aligned to goals or desires or, or success metrics that someone mm -hmm. else has, right? Um, it's what I said earlier, like the, the bonsai versus the wildflower, right? Like, don't mm. be someone else's bonsai, you know, or the whatever. <laughs> like, keep, keep wild a little, you know. Yes. A famous line by the poet about what are you going to do with your wild and precious life, right? Mm. So, you know, we are wild landscapes, be that wild landscape, give it the amount of grooming you need, but, but don't over manicure it, um, especially don't over manicure it before you understand it, right? Mm -hmm. And as you unfold that and, and, and apply your particular genius, like courage, as I said, not being afraid to do it, and get allies, like nobody grows and develops through life on their own. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just apply to you and you need to seek out, but you also need to be that support and mentor and whatever uh, to others. So there's just this dynamic of learning is just kind of intuitive and, and, and second nature. And it, as you said, like it, it, it's a lifelong thing. Like it's not, wouldn't make sense for it to, to stop at a certain point. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that's standing out to me a lot from what you just said, number one, I love the, the, the imagery of the bonsai or the wildflower. I love them both. <laughs> you know, I have a crystal bonsai here um, at my place. And I also love like just walking along the city and the parks and things and someone seeing all the wildflowers that come up and all the bees and, you know, all of the nature that's attracted to them as well. So that's great. And also, um, I will, Andrea, maybe, maybe for the, because I, I can't claim the bonsai wildflower uh, yeah. uh, as my own. I, I, I heard it recently and thought it was just great. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe in, uh, I'll give it to you. The, I, I, I know the name of the book. Um, but, but, but the author is slipping my mind, but I'll give it to you. Maybe put it in the notes. Cause I mean, this lady, as I said, she's, um, I don't know if she still is, but for years she was the sort of head of, um, new students and guidance counseling and all that at Stanford, which is obviously mm -hmm. one of the greatest educational institutions in the world. Mm -hmm. Very wise woman. I mean, when I heard her on a podcast, I was just like, she could talk for days and I would just keep listening and she has two <laughs> books and I read them. And so anyway, she uses that, she yes. uses that before. And I think it's, it applies um, in many ways, I, I find. In many ways, yeah. No, it, it definitely strikes me in a very strong way. So thank you for the introduction to that. And I will definitely add those details in the show notes. Um, the other thing that's coming to mind is I think sometimes we think of learning is, and you've touched on this, we think of learning as like this large thing, 
but it's really much more grounded that we than we believe sometimes. Um, it's in the everyday, it's in every moment. Like when you talked, for example, of how like learning how to interact with your son and what his needs are, and then learning how to interact with your daughter and what her needs are. I mean, that's mm. learning, you know, it's not all it's not always um so end goal focus. I think it's also just us evolving mm. as people, you know, every day. So there's different oh. layers and levels to learning. Um and I love that you talked about like curiosity, but not also curiosity, but also courage, because you can, you mm -hmm. can, you know, do the research and you can figure something out how to like mentally, right? You can know how to oh. do it, but you have to actually take the step and do it and then learn from the doing and iterate as you go. If you don't actually do, if we don't take action, it's, it's like we're like these, um, like standing at the, the sidelines of our lives, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, it took me a long while to realize not only how much like grow, if you think about a simple line of like knowing, doing, and being, I mean, that's somewhat of a simplified one, but you want to get to the sense of like being. So in whatever you're learning and doing, when you're in that flow state or you fully own something, it becomes second nature. You're like, you've embodied it, right? It's being, but it took me a long time in my life to realize how much, and I guess, cause it was just my strength and I was very nervous around doing, I remain mm -hmm. in the knowing. I thought if I knew everything that would translate into the, the being right. And as I've yeah. gotten older, I've realized, well, no, you've got to apply it. You've got, as you said, get in the game, get off the sidelines, if you want to use that metaphor. And like, mm -hmm. yeah, doing. And I know in the corporate training I did for the for years, especially in onboarding type training, it got progressively as we would work with new clients or work with the same clients and keep improving it. Less knowing, more doing. Less knowing, mm -hmm. more doing. And, and reflective and self-consciousness consciousness around the learning where you're not just getting feedback as a learner from outside, but you're giving yourself feedback in real time. Right. So, mm. yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know for me, I know it's not like this for everybody, but for me, that was uh, the hardest thing to get myself to, to believe and then start to try to act upon. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I think that this would be a really great place to perhaps um, wrap up our conversation. I can speak to you for, <laughs> for much much longer but i know that um we need to let you go <laughs> at least for today but before we do i have one last question for you oh, okay and here it is are you ready i'm i'm ready <laughs> okay it's not gonna be too serious i promise so um let's set the scene imagine that you have an opportunity to go back to back in time. So we're going to time travel, right? Go back in time. Um, meet a younger version of yourself. So Rob Socket Jr. of some time and place. But the question <laughs> is, <laughs> oh, no. lots of details. Okay, yeah. The question is, um, what age would you go back to? And what would you, what message would you share with this version of you? Okay. I should have, you asked this to everybody, don't you? When you do your podcast, <laughs> I should have. Known. I do. <laughs> I, I listen, I listened to, a, I listened to a bunch of your podcasts over the last number of weeks and I should have seen this coming. I, I knew it was a question, but I didn't necessarily know it was like the end question for everybody. It's probably good that I didn't prepare it. Cause I'd say something really like over the top or overwrought. I love that you didn't prepare it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I would probably go back to, um, 
early to mid high school. Um, and a lot of what I just kind of talked about, some of those like top line, you know, messages and ideas, I'd probably like want to beat into me thoroughly. So I didn't spend like the next 20 years slowly and arduously like figuring them out. Like, mm -hmm. um, with gentleness though, obviously. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I don't learn anyways too much gently, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, just like um, taking more ownership over my learning, mm. some courage, like um, th there was some things that I only got around to focusing on decades later that I knew I was most passionate about, but I was scared or I thought maybe I couldn't make a living or I was told I couldn't. And I thought mm. I was kind of like, rebellious and like a dream chaser but looking back I I really wasn't or I was in a very tame way so Rob I just wanted to say thank you so much for no. making the time to join me and our listeners and having this conversation and sharing a bit more about learning and your viewpoint on it um, and I hope also inspiring us all to ground our learning a bit and see it for in a more holistic way and a more um, live way than we typically see it. And possibly we can all, you know, start learning even more in ways that are truly valuable to us, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to, you know, if someone wants to get a hold of you or reach out to you, where can they find you? What is your digital home? Oh, okay. Uh... Well, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. Those are the two mm -hmm. social media ones that, that, that work. So yeah, if, if anybody's interested in anything I've talked about or questions or has some, some stuff they might offer or suggestions for, mm -hmm. for things, I'd love, love to have people in touch. Awesome. So I will definitely add your, your um, handles into the show notes. Um, I do want to say, I really enjoyed the book reviews you were doing on LinkedIn um, over okay. the last bit. Those are fantastic. So um, that's a really great place to start, I think, for anyone who wants to. Right. Yeah, those are on LinkedIn. Those are those always on LinkedIn. Before yes. Christmas. If I like a book, and I never do a book review if I thought the book was awful, I just don't mention it. But mm -hmm. if I think a book is good and worth reading. I always think it's good to share that. Yeah. Amazing. So there you go. Um, and I guess before we go, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners for like tuning in listening to this conversation with Rob and myself. I hope it's been really interesting for you and added a lot of value. And we'll see you on the next episode. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. Thank you.